0: welcome to the master your mix podcast helping engineers producers and artists create professional recordings and mixes even from home I'm your host Mike and Davina let's get started hey Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for being here today. Today, my guest is Jet Galindo, and Jet is awesome. She has been doing so much great work. And if you're not familiar with Jet, Jet is a Filipino mastering engineer based out of Los Angeles who has worked on a number of albums for artists including Barbara Streisand, Weezer, Selena Gomez, Neil Young, Pink Floyd, and so many more. And throughout her career, as you're going to hear in her story, she's had a lot of amazing opportunities that have ultimately led to where she is today. As a mastering engineer who, again, is working with some huge level artists. And one of the really unique skills that Jet brings to the table, and we talk about it in this interview, is the fact that she is a vinyl mastering engineer. So when it comes to mastering for vinyl, there are specific needs. And to actually cut vinyl is a very artisanal kind of job. I think that's the word artisanal. It it requires a very specific set of skills that most audio engineers don't have. There's... A physical element to cutting vinyl. And in this interview, we definitely talk about some of the intricacies of that and some of the nuances of. You know, preparing your tracks for vinyl, and what things you need to be aware of so that you get the best quality. So if you're an artist who plans to release your music on vinyl, you're definitely going to pick up a lot of great stuff in this interview. It's stuff that you definitely have to consider when you're going to be choosing a manufacturing plant to work with, or ultimately when you're going to be choosing someone who is going to be making your vinyl master. So I think you're going to get a lot of really cool tips out of this episode. Jet does a great job of answering her questions and providing a lot of great insights and details. So let's just jump right into the interview. Jekyllindo, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of your episodes finally, and I am ready to nerd out and chat.
0: Awesome. We love that. For people who might not know your story, can you give us that background on how you got into music production and ultimately to mastering and where you are today?
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to try to like keep it short because... Um, Me coming here um, all the way from the Philippines, you you go through a lot of of journeys in your story. But essentially, um, I grew up with a family of musicians, but them being musicians, they also say to their kids that um, they want their kids to pursue a quote-unquote real um, college degree or something, especially like Asian parents. I I come from the Philippines, so... Um I finished uh, a degree in psychology but I've always loved music and my parents being um, band managers they they manage and teach um cover bands in the Philippines Amazing. I've always been exposed to just modern music since I was born and um all the way through college I guess it's my way of rebellion but I got into classical music so I toured with a choral group um for a long time in the Philippines so Uh, As I was finishing my psychology degree, I was also touring with my um, choral ensemble in the US, Europe, um, Asia. So uh, it it was a fun experience of combining both um, modern and classical music as I studied psychology. Um, And it kind of like was a weird combination that made it uh, such a a good blend of skill sets to get into audio engineering. And so the question of how I got into audio engineering is because um, my dad's always encouraged me to tinker with technology and equipment. Um, we're, we're all three sisters in, in my family, and I'm the one that really got into building computers growing up. And I got into um, programming and web development when I was a kid, when like internet was just starting out, me building websites in geocities angel fire i'm not sure if you're familiar with oh, those, sites, those but yeah. <laughs> yeah but i got into that stuff so um and yeah the, um i've always just loved technology i've always loved music but i'm not really a um composer um so i just knew that I, i'm very much into music and and live and breathe it but not as a songwriter or producer i just um but as I was touring with my choir and, and we went here in the US, I got introduced into this path called audio engineering. And that's when everything just clicked. And before, as I was like um directionless when I was studying psychology, because I knew I wanted to pursue music. When I discovered audio engineering at that time, that's when everything just became so laser focused. And I just knew that I wanted to be a sound engineer. Um, while I was studying psychology all the way in thousands of miles in the Philippines. And there's really no in- audio engineering school in the Philippines. So all I knew was I have to study abroad, study here in the US. Um, but as I got ready for that, I just knew that I had to be exposed to as much technology as possible as I was in the Philippines. So me being um, very much tech savvy, um, I got into this um job working as a multimedia training coordinator for priests and nuns i'm not gonna uh get deep into that because it's another long story but i taught um web um development graphics design video editing to um pastoral workers <laughs> yeah but that's just um i just knew i had to be immersed in technology as i um, prepared to study abroad and it just so happened that that multimedia training facility had a recording studio as well um and they were actually looking for interns and it's all very um uh just a, a really cool um uh consequent uh um like turn of events uh maybe in a way where if you really want something it's like the universe kind of like um falls into place to like Um, help you get towards your your dream or whatever. But yeah, so I was working in that recording studio for four years when I decided that, okay, it's time for me to go study um, formally. So that's when I got accepted into Berklee College of Music in Boston. And um, that's where I pursued music production and engineering um, with a minor in acoustics and electronics. And when I graduated in 2012, um, uh, I was supposed to have a job lined up waiting for me as a recording engineer for the Aspen Music Festival in Colorado. Um, But because my international um, employment authorization card did not arrive on time, like I I had to be dropped off of that job just a few days after it started. So my three months uh, after graduating was just completely blank and as an international um student in the US you had just one year to work um whichever job you had and then you had to head back to your home country so i was just scrambling to figure out the next step now that like my my first 3 months was open and um i guess just being really eager to um Im- get immersed in audio engineering during my studies in berkeley college of music um the the head of the audio engineering department recommended me uh, for avatar studios in new york um i I was just uh like when i was in berkeley i was just really um immersed in the audio engineering world it's like i really did nothing but engineer for students um i would be um busy studying during the day but um after that i would just be in the studio all the time i um, building my portfolio as an audio engineering student but when other engineering students had a home studio mine was different I had a mobile recording rig because me coming from a classical background I just loved um, classical location recording so I also recorded a lot of ensembles in MIT and Harvard um, and yeah that that was my thing but um, I guess building all that Uh, portfolio while I was in Berkeley just helped um, with all the recommendations come in um, as soon as I I needed job opportunities. And that's when I thought that my future is already going to be set in stone when I started in New York. Um, When I was engineering at Avatar Studios, um, I got to work with um, Nal Rogers, Roberta Flack, um, and my boss, Jerry Barnes, is such an amazing bassist and, and producer. But I got a call um, from one of the professors in Berkeley College of Music telling me about an opportunity um, to be the mastering assistant of Doug Sachs. And for those who are in the world of mastering, Doug Sachs is considered the grandfather of mastering. Um, he opened the very first independent mastering facility in 1967 called the Mastering Lab. And Um, at that point, um, his uh, assistant at the time had to leave. So it's like, they were scrambling to find someone to take over. And rather than do the typical, like post job listings, because it's the mastering lab, they relied on like by word of mouth. And somehow that led to me um, applying for it, um, interviewing for it, and and me getting the job. So it's like, I I chose to leave New York and all of all of the great things about it to start um, my path uh, towards becoming a mastering engineer all the way in, in Ojai, uh, California. So Ojai is kind of like two hours away from Los Angeles, but it feels like you're six hours away just because of how secluded it is. It's like all the way up in the valleys, um, and yeah, it, it's it, like no billboards anywhere. It, it, it's it's very much like countryside um, feeling. So and and I didn't have a car at that time. So I just biked um, to work every day. And and it's a completely different life from New York. But that's what um, started my journey to mastering. So I, I officially became a mastering engineer under Doug Sachs um, at the Mastering Lab in 2013. And um that's also when my journey to um vinyl cutting started. Cause um even at this point you really can't learn how to be a, a vinyl cutter and vinyl mastering engineer in any school. It's it's very much an apprenticeship type situation. And um there's actually a lot of opportunities for vinyl cutting. Um, but we can get there later. But yeah, that that's essentially how um I started my journey. It's like once you learn under Doug Sachs, um, it's like you you have no choice but to keep being a mastering <laughs> engineer because it's a freaking rare opportunity and I was lucky to to have been chosen for that path. Of course. But yeah, that's that's a, that's the gist of it all. That's
0: amazing. You know, like I yeah. love hearing stories like that because I think that for so many people, especially younger people that are maybe going to audio college or something like that, there's this like thought that my path is going to be very linear and I'm going to go to school and I'm going to immediately get a job because I went to school and then I'm going to be set forever. And it's like, it's great to hear your story where like you did bounce around a lot and you did a lot of different things. And ultimately that put you in, in the best situation possible for, you know, to, to when this opportunity arose, right?
1: Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. It's like, um, I, I met with another amazing engineer, her name's Cynthia Daniels, who's like a two-time Grammy winning engineer. And how she described her her career path to me was that Rather than a linear, it feels more like a spiral because you feel like you're moving forward, but then you keep being pulled back and then forward again and pulled back. And you feel that you're just stuck in a circle, but actually you're like elevating yourself in every like cycle that feels like you're not going anywhere, but you're actually moving. And um, I think that's just one of the things that is very reassuring to hear um, because it's like we all go through… Um, weird um, like sidesteps and and, like challenges along the way. But every challenge really just um, gets us stronger. We might not sense it, but the thing is, it's like, if you love what you do, you're, 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 I I think that passion is what's going to keep you um, driving you forward. Um, It might not feel like it, but it's like a spiral. It's like you're, you're kind of like elevating in, in your journey even if it feels like you're you're just being in a circular motion but it's not
0: of course and and, and part of the journey is having those setbacks as well right it's like mm-hmm. it's it's like nature's way of testing you sometimes to see like how badly oh, do you yeah. really want this if i throw you a curveball are you going to run with this or are you going to just give up, are right? yeah, <laughs> failures are
1: great yeah failures are cuz cuz you are going to if if you're going to be a mastering or mixing engineer you're going to be working with clients and um part of the whole um nature of of being a mixer and mastering engineer is it's a a, a client uh, centric it, it's a service industry um we tend to forget that but at the end of the day we're 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 offering our skill sets to help um take someone's art to its final destination and you have to be comfortable with the feeling of of um, feedbacks and critiques, mm-hmm. and and being comfortable with the whole process, and that's that's the great thing about music. It's like it, it's collaboration, and if you feel that you're you have to you have to be winning all the time and you have to be right all the time, then that's a sucky collaboration. In my opinion, of course.
0: Opinion. <laughs> yeah, right? I guess that's that's where your uh, psychology background definitely comes in handy, right? It's like learning how to deal with people.
1: I know, but. It's funny because someone said, like, if, if you're in a recording studio, not just as a mastering engineer, but also in recording or mixing, you kind of like turn into the bartender because it's like you end up just listening to all these artists like talk about their lives. And then you um, it's your job to keep like serving the drinks, uh, a.k.a. like making music and just making them comfortable. And then once it's done, the stories stay inside, <laughs> Yeah. like um yeah it's funny yeah we're we're, we're like musical bartenders
0: yeah i, I like and, that and the people who are really good at it are the ones that ultimately like keep clients right it's like if you that that that's the that's like the interesting part about working in the studio is that it is very much a relationship and the, how you nurture that relationship while you're working with people and how you listen to people and how you offer creative criticism and all that kind of stuff. It's all a delicate thing. So it's like, if you know how to handle that really well, you'll make people feel comfortable and, and then they'll ultimately want to continue working with you. But like, it's very easy to break that level of trust between the artist and the producer or engineer, yeah. or mastering engineer, or whatever. Like, right.
1: Um, that's one of the things that, um, uh, is is probably a bit underrated when you're getting into this career path in music cuz um you can spend thousands of dollars like studying the how to operate the next daw or like um training your ears or or um, saving up for the next set of of trendy plugins but like at the end of the day it's like people are going to choose to work with you because they like you it's like they get along with you of um course. so yeah it's like people skills uh whether we like it or not, is is still a big part of, of this industry. And I'm a freaking introvert. So it's like, it, it's a it's a, it's a balance.
0: Absolutely. It, it's funny, because I feel like so many guests that I've had on the podcast have talked about the importance of communication skills and, and having those personal skills. And I feel like a part of me when I when I made this podcast was like, people don't want to hear that they want to just talk about gear and like all this nerdy stuff. But it's like, everyone listening to this, like, there's a reason this topic has come up so many times. And it's something that you have to pay attention to. And it's something that you have to be aware of. Because if you mess this up, you can easily mess up your career. And so, you know, this is a great example of like, you know, why you need to be a good person and and what that means and how how to work with people and and keep them coming back to you, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I'm glad that that, um, you agree with that, too. We were like, talking about this just a few minutes ago about how in music there's really no right or wrong Mm -hmm. so you can train to be the best engineer in the world but if you don't allow yourselves to um, let go of your ego so you can really um, pick the brain of your collaborator and understand the vision they want and at the end of the day it's like their vision is just as important as you knowing the tools of the trade um so yeah it's 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 a really fine balance and and even if you're like you feel that you're not really like the most um socially in uh uh skilled person in the world like at the end of the day it's like you love what you do so it's the passion that's gonna drive you forward and at, at the end of the day you're no matter who you are, no matter whether you're like the most likable person in the world, there's always going to be people who will drive with you more than others mm-hmm. And so it's always chemistry and and I, I guess um, the more you collaborate with others, the more you discover who you you drive with and of course you, you get to you find you get to find your community and, and your your um, tribe easier that way yeah
0: i think it's equally as important to know who is not your ideal client and and you know th- that, than it is to know who it is right like you have to know what your values are how those align with the people you're working with and if you have to turn down a project because they don't align with your values like that's great you've just freed up your time for something else so it's like that, exactly. that is just equally as important yeah and i and i think too like doing like a yeah, I think, too, doing, like, a self-audit sometimes of, like, the way you handle relationships, it, it's something that's hard to do, but, it, like, it's necessary to do. Um, a book that I would recommend to people who are listening to this is called How to Win Friends and Influence People, and it sounds like such a schmarmy kind of title, and, like, it sounds like it would be a horrible book, but it's actually a really good book. I agree it, like, of, that. Yeah. Who's it's the like author? A, uh, I can't remember offhand. I, I want to okay, say it's okay. Dale Carnegie. But um, mm-hmm. the idea of it is just kind of, like, all these little ways that you can just, like, have better communication with people and it's it's these little ideas that like if you just pay attention to this little thing and the way you answer it or the way you like interact or like the way you present yourself like physically or whatever like these are the things that can make an impact on the communication and um it's something I would definitely recommend people read as much as it's like kind of like a horrible title. You know, it actually it actually is a really good book to like do that self audit and to be like, oh, am I actually listening to this or am I shooting people down all the time and that kind of stuff? So I think it's it's definitely something worth worth reading for people. Or, or yeah, like or something. Um,
1: if you ever get that book, like um, put it on the same like bookshelf bookshelf as your. Um, Audio 101 or audio technology, like uh, Bobcat's books. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like combine (laughs) them all and and you're well on your way to success as a a studio owner.
0: Of course. There was something else you mentioned a little bit ago. Uh, You were talking about the idea of like, you know, constantly... keeping up to date with the new technology and that kind of stuff and, and it sounds like that was kind of a, a big motivator for you in your past like you were you're always driven by the tech and finding these new things and, mm. and ultimately that led to where you are so how important is it to you to be keeping up with like the new trends that are happening with with the software and and just the mastering world in general is that is that an important thing or is it kind of one of those things where once you've learned it you can just keep doing it
1: that that's so funny but um uh, i as you're asking me that question, I, I'm trying to like, um, like analyze how to approach this. But it's really kind of like a yes or no situation because um, it's important to learn the foundations of the whole audio production process. Because at the end of the day, if you have, if you just decide to skip that and just look for a tutorial on how to like use isop RX, how to use an equalizer. You might learn how to use a plugin, but you really won't understand the reasons behind it. And understanding the foundations and, and like le- reading up on, on Audio 101 will already give you um, a leg up in terms of like approaching the whole audio production process. Like um, when I went to audio school, one of the things that we um, spent a lot of time on studying is how um, large format analog consoles work. The reality is many of us students will never have to use a large format console after graduating from from school. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is all these plugins, all these DAWs that you're going to be playing around with, all follow the same um, signal flow, um, same um, functionalities as the large format consoles that they were designed from so understanding that the um the, the foundations of of your signal chain understanding why um understanding the reasons be- behind sample rates and bit depth and and your your dacs understanding the why's will help you um make smarter decisions to your music and at the same time um if, for example, you, you look up um, the internet and YouTube on how to operate all these new plugins, which is great. That is mm-hmm. that is amazing. But at the same time, once you've learned how these tools work, having all these foundations really back up your knowledge will really help you empower and go beyond what um, has been covered in all these YouTube videos. Because at the end of the day, like any any um, information out there or manual about how each of these um, devices, tools, um, DAWs, plugins work, um, there's so much more beyond what has been covered. And a lot of that, you really just um, discover, the more you play around with it, the more you listen to it, and the more you apply it to your everyday production. So I really understand the value of like really... um, uh, strengthening the foundations of your audio knowledge and at the same time it's nice to like um keep your um self up to date with what's happening out there so for example like the whole um discussion about Atmos so it it's nice to like keep yourself up to date about like what's going on about Atmos but at the same time um a lot of the decisions that are done in Atmos is really done with the foundation of, of stereo um, production. Stereo will, is still king and will remain king for a lot of reasons. And um, we can go into a deep dive about that, <laughs> but it's still good to be aware of like what's out there. Um, and I mean, even like the technologies and the music production, the business techniques you learn because of like all the evolving um, industries out there, like music on TikTok. Um, like um, royalties that you get from all the new um, streaming platforms that are out there. There's a lot, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, you get to be smarter about analyzing all these like new, um, like massive information that gets thrown at you by having that foundation. So it's really like a, a healthy combination. I hope yeah, I'm making sense. It,
0: no, that makes sense. Like I think it can definitely be dangerous to constantly be learning and the biggest thing is like implementing always right like if you're just if you're just binge watching youtube videos or whatever that even if it's like reading books or whatever like if you're not doing anything with that information then it's not actually going to help you you're just consuming it and i and i i I agree with you on the topic of like the youtube videos and people talking about plugins because often it seems like a lot of those videos are so focused on this is how great this plugin is and if you have this plugin it will do everything you need it to and Really, uh-huh. it's like if you take a step back and you actually look at like, wait a minute, they're all saying the same thing. And there's like mm-hmm. 30 different EQ plugins or 30 different compressor plugins. But wait a minute, like the fun- the, the the actual uh, process is the same, you know, like that's that foundation that you need to understand. And when you understand that foundation, then you don't need to watch a YouTube video for every single plugin that you use because you already have that foundation. You exactly. know how that tool works.
1: And 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 just to add to that too. Um, so what, for example, one good example is Ozone or uh, Ozone Eight, um, and I I use Ozone and I even um, con- contribute mastering articles for their lo- Learn Portal. So I highly recommend checking out the ISO Learn Portal. And Ozone is one of those um, plugins that um, offers everything, like everything, including the kitchen sink. It's like um any tool or or functionality that you have would be on there but the fact of the matter is the question is the question you have to ask yourself is do you need them and most of the times a lot of successful mixers recording engineers and mastering engineers do well at their job because they don't have to to deal with so many decision making um buttons every day it's like um for example, I like fab filter pro l two because it's simple. It might not have a lot of features, but the features that are there work now um for for like giant tools like ozone um there are great tools out there, but if your settings are incorrect or if you haven't really if you didn't pay attention too much to what um this um function is doing to your sound, it can actually take away and and kind of ruin the sound if if you Um, don't have your settings correctly. So sometimes it's like having everything under one toolkit might be dangerous. Yeah, so. sometimes
0: simplifying is better. And it's funny because I, yeah. I always I always think to like, whenever I look at a picture of a mastering studio versus a recording studio, it's like, you see in the recording studio, you see like racks and racks of gear everywhere and big console, it's like buttons everywhere, right? And then you look at a mastering studio and it's usually like five or six pieces in a small desk. And it's like, yeah, sure, they got the computer and they have equally as many plugins sometimes. But like, it, yeah, it seems like mastering engineers tend to just focus on like, hey, these are my tools. I'm going to work within these limitations. And oh, sometimes yeah. that is a really good thing. And it, and it, and as far as your workflow goes, like having those set tools that you use on a regular basis just allows you to work faster and smarter because you're not trying to figure out something new every time you work, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And um, just to uh, add to what you said about mastering studios having a simple chain, um, just to uh, stress how minimalist our chain is. One of the th- things that really make our studio sing are the two line amps. And line amps are essentially um, what they are. They just add level. But the f- the way they add level, just the whole characteristic difference between our tube line amp and solid state line amp already makes such a big difference to our decisions in, in the mastering chain. And then um, back at the mastering lab, um, Doug, my, my mentor, really only had two shelf EQs a compressor and a limiter that's it um and uh of course it's a surround mastering facility so every channel had their own but that's it and it's a completely analog and um he's brought a lot of um grammys um into the studio and and for artists that way like simple is key because not because um it's simple but uh the thing is you can do a lot of things with just one tool but mastering uh, or, or like um being really good at understanding the functions of each tool. Like I would just recommend um if anyone wants to um get into mastering or just production in general, start with the Pro Q3. Like the Fab filter, Pro Q3 EQ. Learn every shape. Learn every um like um bandwidth shape, like whether it's a, a bell curve, um uh high pass or low pass filter even like the um db per octave shape just understanding every little um thing there and not use any other eq just use that one and understand every little thing and and you're already way ahead of your your peers.
0: It's true. It's like uh, I remember one of the one one challenge that I got a long long time ago from one of my mentors was like Make a mix using all high pass filters or like uh, using all like filters, high pass, low pass, low pass, or shelves. And like just do those. Like you only have those four options. Make a mix. And it's like, it's incredible how you can approach a mix that way. And it's very freeing. (laughs) It's very free. Like it feels like a limit at first. And then you're like, wait a minute. Like (laughs) I've been doing like, Five boosts above this frequency, like to make up for the same thing I could do with one shelf you know and it's like so its it's a very interesting concept it's in really
1: it. cool and and somehow I guess um one of the reasons why um a lot of people think that mastering is like a dark art is because like I, I guess the one thing that surprises a lot of people is that we mastering engineers get to do what we do because of how minimalist and uh, um uh, uh, simple our approach is and Sometimes simplicity is like something a lot of people can't grasp um, you uh, you'd be surprised by how little we use compressors in mastering facilities and i've spoken to other um, mastering colleagues like at the end of the day um, we the reason why our chain is simple is because we only put something on our chain when it has a purpose, and we always um the the thing that you have to keep in mind when you're mastering is that you're working on music that's already been approved to the best um of the abilities and circumstance in um on the mixer and artist's side so we approach mastering in a way where you're not we're not there to change um the music we're there to really bring the best out of the music enhance it and 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 uh maybe address certain challenges that couldn't be fixed by the mixer or or the artist, but yeah we're, we're there to really just enhance and 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 really um bring the music up to one hundred percent and yeah, many times a compressor isn't needed for that um and and we get to do a lot of amazing things with just an e q and a limiter we will need a limiter for mastering, but e q can already um. Give you so much power, not just in mastering, but in mixing too.
0: Absolutely. And I love what you said there about like choosing gear for a purpose and like being intentional with that. And um, and yeah, going to that idea of like learning your plugins inside and out. It, it, another thing about mastering that has always struck me in a lot of ways is like how minimal a lot of these things are like EQ, like people, mastering engineers always talk about, oh, if you're using like maybe like a dB and a half of, of EQ, like sometimes that's more than enough, right? And like to, to a lot of people that seems like, you know, that's unheard of, right? It's like in the mixing world, people crank it like 12 dB or whatever. So I think it's like... There's something to the idea of also challenging yourself to make mixes or to make masters where you are using just small amounts and seeing how that adds up over time and how, how big of a difference that can make. And I think it also trains your ears to like notice those little like small details that you've added to something, right?
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and one, one thing that I recommend as an exercise for anyone that, even those who aren't mastering engineers, people who are just starting out, I would highly recommend, uh, and this is something I do on a daily basis as a mastering engineer, is to do blind A-B comparisons. Um, A-B is essentially having the same um, music with the same settings, um, just uh, two copies of it, and then one copy will have like one slight difference. So, for example, like... um, uh, a one dB at one k versus one dB at three k. That that's a lot in mastering um, lingo. But if one um, track will have all the same settings except for that one k, uh, one dB at one k, and then the other track would be the same settings, but that one dB is at three k instead of one k. And then if you're in Pro Tools, you just um, select one track um, and mute it. And then select both and then just hold shift M, shift M, shift M. So it's like you're switching between the two <laughs> yeah. and you're not looking at your screen. You're just listening. So it's like, you're really comparing the two and going blind, like not knowing what you're listening to, but really just zoning in on that difference. And then it's crazy how that, that, um, makes your, you're so much more sensitive and, and it, it's very empowering as a producer and engineer to really hear the difference.
0: Yeah, there's actually a, a free tool out there that you can get. Uh, it's made by a company called Newgen, and they actually have a plugin called AB Assist. And what that does, if, if if I'm remembering it correctly, it is a blind testing tool. So you can actually what? like, yeah, you can actually like throw your tracks in there, and it'll randomize it for you, and you can test it out that way. Um, I I haven't looked at it in a while, so I could be wrong about that. But there, I know that there is definitely a plugin out there, and I think it's Newgen cool. AB Assist. Um, uh, hang
1: on a second. Um, okay, so Nugen. Au- okay, let's let, let's look it up because Nugen Audio is actually really cool. And in fact, um, for those who are listening, um, I-, I can give all the information to Mike later. But if if it is Nugent Audio, um, I have a code here that gets you twenty percent off on all um, uh, Nugen Audio plugins. Amazing. Uh, it, the gift code is Women in Vinyl. <laughs> I'll I'll give that information to you later, Mike. But yeah, I I do a lot of work for the women in vinyl community. Um, Look them up. And and Nugent Audio um, is offering a 20% discount on anything, uh, on on any of their plugins. But yeah, that's a funny segue. Yeah, that's funny. This this podcast is not sponsored by by nugent <laughs>
0: don't worry <laughs> yeah hey, I, w- I would love to hey if they're interested mm-hmm. in it feel free to <laughs> reach out to me someone yeah yeah nugent's
1: <laughs> awesome I- i'm glad you-, you mentioned them they're a great company
0: yeah so so mm-hmm. yeah i believe that nugent plugin like actually does blind tests for you so it's, it's that's a really great way like i totally agree the blind testing thing is is such a great tool to uh to just learn and and to, to actually hear those details and i also love like I've I've loved whenever like a plugin manufacturer makes a a pl- like a I've seen a, I've seen Steven Slate do this a couple times with his plugins where he'll be like okay here's my plugin here's another one which one sounds better and then oh, he'll yeah. be like and then will be like oh I didn't even change <laughs> it you know like so,
1: <laughs> so yeah blind tests are great because it's like yeah. It, it, it's very revealing. You you'd be surprised by by the results you get by just doing blind tests.
0: Yeah, there's there's some psychology for you too, right? Just that psychology yeah. of like something changing. You think it should sound different, or you should th- you think it should sound one way, but yeah,
1: <laughs> it's like it, it's it's um psychoacoustics um like the whole the whole thing where you sometimes you think that there's a difference, but you're actually just listening to the same thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then
1: that like the whole thing about like you thought you're working on this compressor this whole time, but it's been bypassed.
0: Yeah. This whole time,
1: but yeah, it, um, blind tests really train your ears um, to to get more um, intimately familiar with your tools.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you were first starting off as a mastering engineer, then um, it sounds like you were in the studio, you were already doing recording stuff. Do you feel like as a mastering engineer you need to have that foundational knowledge of being a recording and mixing engineer, or can someone just oh, get yeah. right into? Can someone get right into mix- mastering, or is that like That's you need a that? Tr-
1: Great question, Mike. Um, And and I always joke about this when I get asked about this. um, Like, if anyone wants to become a mastering engineer, the the fact of the matter is, I did not grow up as a kid telling everyone that I want to be a mastering engineer when I grow (laughs) up. And I'm pretty sure that all mastering engineers don't uh, have the same experience, where um, any of us didn't really anticipate being full-time mastering engineers. And that's only something that like fell to our, in our journey to us, and that's mm-hmm. what we ended up embracing. And I'm sure like a lot of other amazing engineers in their niche um, career paths didn't anticipate, for example, like a for- forensic audio engineer probably didn't expect that they would be in forensics, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the beauties of um, mastering is that you're in mastering because you're collaborating with people unless you're an EDM producer who just masters their own stuff. And Mm -hmm. I I know a lot of killer EDM producers that are freaking awesome when it comes to mastering their music. Um, But it's more likely that if you're mastering, you're working with other people. And one of the things that really make you an effective mastering engineer is understanding the language and the um, whole um, process when it comes to recording and mixing. So me ha- coming from a, a recording and mixing background makes, it, makes me a more effective communicator um, as a mastering engineer. And there are also times when you're collaborating with producers, artists, engineers, their way of communicating don't necessarily, in a way this is probably better. Um, a lot of the communication that happens don't necessarily fall under just numbers. Like a lot of clients are not gonna say, "Um I think it needs more five k uh, uh maybe could could we lessen the the fifty k on there uh yeah um the the point is um it actually can make more sense if um the artist or producer engineer would say um can we I just want a little bit of brightness on this and or like someone would say, can I get more definition or clarity in in the lows I, I feel like um." I feel like I, I want to hear more of that that attack on, on the kick. That makes more sense because um like different engineers um and, and our respective tools behave differently. So someone's 50 Hertz will probably be different on a mastering engineer's analog 50 Hertz. So talking more in a more musical language makes more sense. And um in that case ca- having this experience and and deep understanding of um artists in the production recording and mixing standpoint makes you a more effective mastering engineer in terms of understanding what these people are are asking for so and and at the end of the day that doesn't mean that you have to learn how to record mix and master if um you want to be a mastering engineer like there's really no rule but um i found that um a recording mix and mixing background really helps in in mastering
0: yeah i totally i think it goes back to what you said earlier about learning the foundations and part of the foundations is being able to actually like characterize the different frequency ranges and and that's really what it is like that's how yeah. like the people who don't understand the the actual frequencies themselves like that's how they communicate you know Mm -hmm. exactly it's it's always like the bright and dark and and muddy or attack and punchy that kind of thing so it's like if you can define what those frequencies sound like or or, or, or what those sounds are in the frequency range then like then you now have this like almost you're like kind of like um you can speak two languages almost you know like
1: exactly you're translating um what they're asking for and And it actually is helping with the whole um, uh, person-like connection Um, because a lot of artists would um, uh, have expressed that they're uh, a bit shy or hesitant about sharing their viewpoints because they don't talk frequencies. And it's your job in mastering to really encourage them and feel that they're... um, that they're comfortable in your space, that they shouldn't be afraid to like share to you what they think of the
0: music. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that is kind of interesting that ties into this is the idea of like untrained ears versus trained ears, and when you have customers that are saying, "Can you make things brighter?" It's it's almost like in the mixing world we talk about make like boosting big big frequency amounts, like you know you might boost like five dB or whatever. But in mastering, I know that people are so subtle with it and. I'm curious to get your thoughts on why mastering is about, like, subtle, subtle boosts, and, and will people even hear those? Or, like, should, can you go extreme with it in mastering? Like, is there a time and place for that?
1: That's really cool. So, um, uh, being extreme, uh, sometimes you don't realize that you have to, um, like, add more elbow grease when you're already there. It's like you can't really anticipate it. It will depend on the music. But one of the reasons why um adjustments in mastering are much more subtle than in mixing or recording is because in mastering you're working with the music as a whole rather than multi um, multi tracks mm-hmm. cuz um your goal in mastering is to really uh, is to have this stereo mix and really bring out the best in the sound quality before it gets sent out to the music marketplace so one adjustment that you would make in the um in in the total balance overall, like one db at ten k will not just affect one instrument it will affect everything um, so it might seem subtle when you're not in in the mastering space, but if you're the mastering engineer and you 're also the the client um 1dB at 10k is actually going to be very noticeable, especially if once you're intimately familiar with the music. Like once you're in it, um, it just, uh, a lot of things are are much more felt sonically and um, small adjustments will already make all the difference. In fact, um, like you'd be surprised by how just adding gain, like adding a bit of... Um, low shelf uh EQ attenuation at 50 hertz, and just adding a, a bit of of air will make a huge difference in and 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 even your limiter shape like let's go back to Pro-L2 which is which I use a lot in the studio um having the same settings but only but switching between the different um limiter shapes cuz in Pro-L2 there's um transparent shape, dynamic, aggressive you'd be surprised by how different each of those sound. One is not necessarily better than the other. But just addition, do a blind test comparison of the different shapes. Um, It already makes a drastic change that does not require any EQ. In fact, you can even just not do any um, EQ or compression processing, just throw in a limiter and addition between those different shapes, and it will already make a huge difference. So yeah, um, in, in a nutshell... Um, smaller adjustments are more felt because you're approaching the music as a whole rather than individual tracks. That makes a lot of sense the way you put mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want to go on a tangent, but um, I'm sure there's going to be a question about stem mastering. Um, But the point is that the essence of, of mastering is that we're working on the finalized mix. That's been approved by everyone and you're going to be the final gate before the music gets sent out into the real world. So, um, yeah, those small adjustments will will make a whole lot of difference. So you have to be very subtle and you'll be you'll realize that subtlety will 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 come naturally to you um, Mm. when you're finally in that mastering seat.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So another question that I have that kind of ties into this a little bit is the idea of I've heard some people say that mastering is about making broad moves with things like EQ versus surgical moves. And I would assume that when we're talking about these kind of 1 dB moves that we're probably doing more of a broad move so that it's like more obvious that it's covering more of that like kind of higher frequency range or the brightness, whatever we want to call it, right? Is that is that your approach?
1: Actually, yes, and and I, I, I also um, know that a lot of other master engineers have that approach. But so when I make, um, for example, EQ decisions, I, I tend to be more um, wide with my um, bandwidth. So like the Q is just a bit more um, wider because it just makes for a smoother overall tonal balance adjustment. When you're EQing, it's not because you want to EQ the tambourine you don't just want to eq the s you don't just want to eq the lead vocal if um that's one of the biggest things you have to adjust with your mindset when you're jumping from the mixing seat to the mastering seat you're approaching the adjustments not by instrument by but by the overall sound and it's by having that broad eq shape where you're um you're aiming for an Overall tonal balance adjustment that really just adjusts the overall sound in a way that's not um, that's more transparent. Because having that broad adjustment at like even half a dB, but just a wider bandwidth, it um it actually makes a lot of different sets um smoother and and um less noticeable and just feels more um immersive with the music itself. When you're doing a very sharp EQ gain of 1 dB at 5k there's going to be a weird hump that will not feel glued into the music. Again, it's not a rule. Um yeah. there might be cases where where I do that. Um but yeah, like broad um there's a reason why a lot of mastering engineers approach um their subtle EQs in in a broad shape because We're aiming for a tonal balance adjustment rather than, like, an instrument um, EQ.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah. And I think... uh, Yeah, I like the way you put it of, like, you're not trying to EQ the tambourine. (laughs) Yeah. and And I think that's one of the big reasons why, you know it is a good idea to send your mixes off to a mastering engineer because they're taking it from that different perspective. Like as the mixing engineer, you have like analyzed the crap out of every single individual track and you're still thinking that way, you know? And so, so when you're in a mastering stage, if that's how you're approaching things then yeah, you're going to be using lots of surgical boosts and cuts and stuff like that, but you're going to add all these weird tones to it and, and, you know it, the thing that you the thing that you boosted to bring out that tambourine is also going to bring out some of the the vocal air or like cymbals and that kind of stuff so you know it, you have to treat it separately one mastering
1: um uh, Pete Dell who's an amazing mastering engineer based in LA I liked how he described it it's more about um look um observing the overall forest as opposed to looking at one tree at a time it's a very different perspective and and I think it that's actually a perfect analogy.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. That's a great way to put it, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I did want to talk about vinyl cutting because this is also a specialty that you have as well, and I think that you know, there's not a lot of people to do it. And like you said earlier, to learn this stuff, you kind of have to work at a mastering studio to to be and be taught by someone who really knows it in order to actually learn it. So I'm curious to know, like, what does that process look like? Um,
1: w- what about it? The the Finding the job, learning the vinyl cutting, or
0: um, let's talk about let's talk about the actual like making making a vinyl master. Like what is involved in that? Is it is it kind of the same process as, as someone who's making a digital master?
1: Okay, yeah, I, a, I know it is. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm gonna start th- my answer by saying that I actually wrote an article uh, about um, mastering your music with the intent of doing a vinyl release and I can send you the link and you can like add it to your show notes. Absolutely. Um, but if you go to isotope.com and just search for vinyl mastering, there's going to be an article that talks about um, how to um, like tips for um, digital mastering when you're releasing your music on vinyl. Cause um, at the end of the day, the quick question is your digital master will be enough to cut your music into a vinyl record. However, there's a lot of caveats on, on that statement, because the vinyl format is an old um, format. It's, it's, in fact, like one of the oldest formats that's being sold commercially to this day. Like, um, the, the, the height of the format itself was in the 70s, and there hasn't been really a lot of huge innovations on the format, and for good reason. Like, format, the v- vinyl is vinyl. And we appreciate the music in vinyl for the reasons that because of its limitations. Period. But um, I'm going to talk about like a few main limitations of the vinyl format to keep in mind if you're you know that you're releasing your music on vinyl, and this is covered in that isotope article. Um, but one of the things you have to keep in mind when you know you're releasing your music on vinyl is the sibilance, because the f- the f- um, nature of the physical format itself. The sibilance, like high-energy, high-frequency um, audio in your music, um, gets represented in the vinyl format as fast um, grooves, like like really short um, fast modulations of the groove on your vinyl record. And a sibilance has like really high energy, high frequency, and that. Um the vinyl cutter can cut that record. However, your turntables and and your your stylus turntable won't be able to physically keep up with the waveform of the sibilance because of of that energy. And what and what ends up happening is that your sibilance will sound like distortion on a vinyl record. And a lot of vinyl enthusiasts will be familiar with that sound. It's really just going to be um Distortion. And in fact, um, the vinyl article that I wrote for the website from Isotope, they're actually going to be re- releasing an update on the article and I can show it to you, Mike, once it's available. Yeah, okay. But it includes uh, um, an audio example of that distortion. So I, I applied a before and after th- um, that can lessen the-, the effect of that distorted sibilance in a vinyl record. But essentially, if you don't have any my advice when you're releasing your music on vinyl is um see if you can communicate directly with the vinyl cutter and and um they will know what what is best to be done for the music but if you don't really know where your music's going to be cut it's good to just be mindful of the sibilance in your vocal especially if like you um it's a ballad album or it's like a, a hard hitting rock record where you know or even a pop record where you know that the vocal is going to be way up front and the sibilance is going to be like pop s where it's like really intense like sticking out control that sibilance and and you're already um well on your way to having a great sounding vinyl record so the next thing that is a common problem with vinyl records is um low frequency phase effects i'm not sure if you're familiar with yep that um situation with vinyl formats but um if you have out of phase information in the low end um it's fine but if it's too much what ends up happening is the vinyl groove is going to end up being so thin to the point that it it could even disappear for for a moment and then just go back in and that will potentially cause um a needle skip on your vinyl record so especially if you're if your music is hip hop or electronic, if you know that your main audience is going to be listening to your music on the vinyl record, just keep in mind to not um, get carried away with with all that like out-of-phase stereo panning effects in the low end. Because low-end, like low-frequency energy, um, the grooves tend to be bigger. And because if it's out-of-phase, how vinyl cutting works is that... um, the, the stereo imaging, the stereo movements in your, your stereo mix is actually cut in um, a lateral movement in, in a vinyl cutting process. Mm-hmm. The center image is cut in a vertical movement in the cutting stylus. And because in situations where there's so much out-of-face information that the center image get, disappears, that's when the groove ends up thinning out and even like going away. And that causes needle skips. So vinyl cutters will have tools to avoid that. But the thing that ends up being done is usually applying a high pass filter just to like soften that, that um, buildup in the low end. One thing that also happens in the vinyl cutting stage is the monoing of the low end. Like even Eugene has that tool, it's called mono filter. And we actually use that um, plugin in in the studio. So one that's a common tool. We don't always use it because we always prefer like not touching the low end. Of course. But if it's just too much, we will um, have to employ um, a tool that and allows us to mono uh, all the way down in the subharmonics. There are if you are going to be cost cutting and you're going to a place that really cuts vinyl for cheap. They will mono your low end way up to two hundred hertz and above. That um, so just um, it it, it's good to be mindful of that. Like if if you're gonna be cost cutting, the audio is gonna be the first to be compromised on vinyl. So um, so it's it's not always
0: necessary to like to mono your low frequencies then. No, no, please don't. (laughs) Okay.
1: So I even wrote in the article that um, at the end of the day, don't mono your your low end just because it's going on vinyl like i um i wouldn't want anyone to f- to feel limited by their production um by their creativity and and their music writing just because of those limitations on vinyl because vinyl cutters have tools that allow them to control these details without compromising the music too much but there uh, um again it all depends on the vinyl facility like some some other facilities really just um, don't care mm-hmm. um but we will have tools to address that but if if you you're, you have no idea where your vinyl's gonna go where it's gonna get cut um just just be mindful um you don't have to monitor your low end just be careful of like um just just look at your 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 stereo imaging um there's a lot of tools by by isotope and, and even new that allows you to look at the the um stereo imaging of your music so yeah just just keep that in mind but don't mono and over the something just because you th- you think it's gonna go on vinyl um yeah. i would much rather that you guys don't um limit your your creativity in the production process but if if you feel that there is no reason for you to like go crazy with with the um phasing effects just just be mindful
0: yeah, of course. So then for someone who is going to be mastering for vinyl or or sending their song off to be mastered for vinyl and they're thinking like, oh, I, I should reduce some of the top end on this or like mono the low end or like, like, how can someone tell when they've gone too far with that? Or is that really the job of like the person cutting the vinyl?
1: It's more of like asking yourself if there's a reason behind the overdone, like the over sibilance or the, the intense phase effects. Um, but especially for like alt rock artists like I- i'm not going to tell them to mono their low end it's it's um don't don't let those limitations of the format limit your your creativity and um to answer your your question the vinyl cutter will have tools um but especially if if your music is like in electronic or alt rock the vinyl format will have its limitations the vinyl your music on a vinyl format will not be um identical to the digital release, and that's really the reality of the format so it's also a matter of like managing your expectations and and also realize that the vinyl format will have surface noise so um at the end of the day, the reasons why people love the vinyl format is not because of its like clean. Uh, like, um, high resolution, like, um, digital clean audio, because that's the opposite of it. But the whole process of like listening to the music on vinyl is the routine of it all too. like having the actual physical entity and owning the music with the vinyl format and then pulling the record out of the jacket. Um,
0: it's an experience
1: uh, dropping side, a side. And the thing is with, with the vinyl format, you're listening to music in a loudspeaker, and that that alone already is a huge difference versus someone listening with a Bluetooth speaker of of an MP3. Like there's there's a reason why a lot of people um, associate vinyl with audiophile experience. It's it's really the the whole routine, the ritual, and the loudspeaker experience. It's it's kind of like um, fine dining versus uh, an MP3. Uh, 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 fine dining versus fast food. Um the 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 ritual of it all and and the physical ownership of the music is part of what makes vinyl amazing. But um if you're releasing your music on vinyl for the first time, just manage your expectations that your music will d- sound differently between the vinyl and the digital release. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to be an if you're trying to release your music on vinyl with the audiophile mindset, um avoid using brokers. Um there's a lot of vinyl brokers out there that act as a middleman, um, where they do all the the um connections with the pressing plants, the cutters, because when you do that, um the money goes not to the music but to the, the broke the brokerage. Um and you have no idea on where your music is, is being produced or being cut. Um, what I would recommend is that you go straight to a pressing plant and, and um initiate your order with them. Um and I actually highly recommend this other podcast and I can even connect you with them, Mike. Um sure. they're called Women in Vinyl. Um that's why Nugent is offering that Women in Vinyl um discount code. But I'm one of the board members of that nonprofit foundation. But Women in Vinyl is they have this cool um podcast where they go over every stage of the vinyl production process. And we're actually going to come out with an episode where we talk about how to release um, your music on vinyl as an indie artist and and making a DIY uh, uh, preparation for releasing on vinyl. But yeah, um, don't feel intimidated by the whole process. A lot of artists feel that they can't release on vinyl because they don't know what happens or don't know where to start. Um, it, it's not that difficult. And and my main tip would be to avoid brokers, go straight to a pressing plant and they will help you. And they will even um, if you really want to go the audiophile approach, they can connect you directly with their vinyl cutter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's funny, like years ago, I used to actually work for... A uh, a CD manufacturing, vinyl manufacturing broker. Cool, as well. So, oh, bro. so <laughs> I, so, so so I totally know that world really well. Oops. And no, 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 it's, it's totally cool. I, I actually I actually agree a hundred percent with what you're saying because you know I remember back then that like people would get their records pressed and you know we we didn't even know what we were like what our our partners were doing with people mm-hmm. the manufacturing plants were doing so you know time and time again we would get people that would press stuff and then the records would come back and they'd be like oh it sounds different or like not the way i expected it. it's like i don't know what they did like you know so so i totally understand why going directly to the plant is the way to go and mm-hmm. i mean why why have a middleman to begin with i you know i understand <laughs> the, the consumer side of it right um and I, and i totally agree with that like i think at the end of the day, people don't realize that vinyl isn't it's not this like digital thing that like just is replicated so perfectly every single time. There there are so many variables in the process and Correct. It, that's why it is such a art to to have the skills to to cut vinyl. Like, you know, it you you really have to be very intimate with that machine to make it do what you want it to do. And I think a lot of people just think it's oh I just you know I'm printing vinyl whatever like you know someone's just going to do it for me and it's always going to be perfect but there are a lot of little steps involved so definitely having someone who knows what they're doing is going to get you the results you want right
1: exactly and and you know what at the other end of the spectrum there are also artists that um, understand that vinyl is more of a novelty and and just a quick um, merch option where they can generate revenue. And there are also vinyl collectors who really don't open their vinyl records and are really just there to uh, to collect them. So I understand why um, some record releases don't really go for the audio quality and more for just, let's just churn these out. And then mm-hmm. let's deal with the vinyl broker, call it a day. And they know how to do the packaging, great. So th- that's fine too. Um, But... Uh, Again, if, if you're an indie artist and you really want to take care of your release, there's um it it's not difficult and, and there are always people to help you
0: out. So at the end of the day then, would you say that you could use a master that was made for a digital release for vinyl? Or is it is it always is it always gonna get shaped to some degree by whoever's yes. cutting it?
1: Um so that's the the thing is, even if there's no shaping, um like if, if it's for example, um a bluegrass easy record that's like um a, a live performance where not, there's nothing complicated um and and when we receive the digital master it sounds great we don't have to do anything even that whole process there's some adjustment that happens because the the um process itself of cutting music on a record um it's also covered in the article that I wrote but there's this um EQ curve, um, with, uh, the way music is cut on a vinyl record, like any, um, cutting lathe and any turntable will have the RIAA curve because, um, the nature of the, um, cutting stylus in the vinyl record, low frequency grooves are just really, uh, it takes up so much space on a vinyl format as opposed to high frequency. So in order for music to, to fit better on a vinyl record. It gets cut with the RIAA curve, where it's kind of like a very steep curve that that kind of lowers the energy of the low frequency, and there's more highs. But then all turntables will have the reverse RIAA curve, so it ends up becoming like a flat response playback. So, um, it it's kind of like an uh, the whole process of cutting any record on a vinyl format there's going to be that adjustment that happens. So yeah, um, that's, uh, to answer your question, um, the whole process of, of vinyl cutting will influence the sound of, of the vinyl record. Um, and, and even the whole process of like, there are some vinyl facilities where they don't have time to QC and they just want um, a record that will pass and will not have any issues with distortion and, and, and um, needle skips and they don't care about audio quality, what they'll just do is just lower the the level of your music and call it a day. So there's no processing that happens. There's always going to be that RA um, curve. Mm -hmm. okay? But um, by lowering the volume of your music, you avoid having any of these problems, except the signal floor just gets raised really intensely. And now you're dealing with... um, the surface noise, the signal, um, the signal-to-noise ratio, just becoming really bad, and at the end of the day, you also don't want that. So it's it's really a, a fine balance. Um, the vinyl cutter um, has to have a lot of like techniques up their sleeve to just make music sing on a vinyl format. So yeah, um, it's fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's such an art. It's like it's it's so cool, um, and I think that there are a lot of factors in it that a lot of people just don't think about, you know, it's like, especially because it's just like, especially now that people are doing or making so much music from home, I feel like the, a lot of that kind of traditional path of like, you know, mixing engineer to mastering engineer to vinyl plant or whatever, like, you know, like I think some of that has been lost to some degree now that people are just doing it on their own. And, and, and that traditional, yeah, that traditional flow of who's working on your project is, is not there. So, it's good to have resources like this, or or your article, where people are learning about this stuff, so that they can actually make informed decisions about how to go about making their their records. Um, one last question that I wanted to ask you about vinyl was just, you know, are there? Let's let's talk about track order because I know the track order can have an Im- impact on vinyl. I'm glad think, you
1: asked because that's one of the things that I was gonna um, add about like the just the quirks of the format. Um, sorry, feel free to finish your question.
0: No, no, like I was I was gonna say like how important <laughs> is it to have. Uh, specific a specific track lot. order. It's okay. very
1: important, man. And and I'm glad you reminded me cuz I wasn't done like talking about the the characteristics of the vinyl format. So, there are two things you want to keep in mind when it comes to track orders if you're releasing on vinyl. Number 1, if you're going to be if you're just mastering your own music and delivering it to um a broker or you know you're you're working with a company that will cut your vinyl, the best way to deliver your music is just one single audio for one side and and then just making sure that you list when um where the song starts for song one, two, three, four, five, like by sending like a one single audio file of side A and one single audio file of side b, there's less chance of like sequence changing happening um at the vinyl cutting stage, but anyway, um moving on to why um track sequence is important. Um, First of all, before we go to track sequence, let's talk about the um, song length, the side length of the music per side. It's important that you don't want your your music length to go too long on your vinyl record because um, the nature of the format, the farther you go in on your vinyl record, the fidelity in your highs on the top end starts to get brittle and and you get a lot of like um high frequency loss th- the deeper you go into your vinyl record so um th- the further you are into the center of the record you get some high fidelity loss so um you don't want to go way too far so we always um warn clients when they send us like a 25 minute side we're already telling them this this will be too long and just know that there's going to be some compromise on the quality um one thing to le- to for us to be able to fit long sides on a vinyl record is to just bring down the overall volume so we can fit more music but then again you're you're going to be dealing with um a more tricky signal to noise uh, noise ratio you're going to have like a higher noise floor um so you don't want 25 minute sides it, um Regardless of the genre, we would recommend having 18 minutes of music per side, at the most 20 minutes. Um, If it's gonna be like a a very like um, sparse, organic, um, folk record, acoustic, you can go 22 minutes. But especially if it's like an EDM, hip hop, or rock record, aim for 18 minutes because then you we really get to cut your music on its full level. And we're not going too far into the um, inside of the disc for the highs to get brittle. In fact, on the art- ISOP article that I wrote, there are listening examples of how the music sounds when it's cut on the outermost side of the record versus inner. So going too long on your music um, will not be good for the music that's at the very end of your record. And this ties um, with the track sequence. So knowing that the the reality of the vinyl format is um, high frequency fidelity loss at the innermost band of the record, keep that in mind when you're doing your track sequencing. So you wouldn't want your high energy music to be at the very last sequence on the side. So for example, side A, you have five songs. Keep your energetic high energy loud songs at the very start or like one song one to song three and then leave your more relaxed um chill music at the very last sequence so that allows you to really get the most quality and experience out of each of the music because if you leave the um high energy music down to the very last um sequence on vinyl it it's just gonna sound brittle and and distorted and not because of sibilance, but it's really just there's high fidelity loss by the time you're at the very last song on the disc. So keep that in mind when you're doing your your track order.
0: That's definitely good to know. And I think that totally explains why, like I remember just being in bands and whenever we would make our records, it was like, how do we sequence things? And we, we would always look at all these records and be like, I think like, you know, the loudest, like the biggest single is usually track two or three or something like that, you know, like, and it makes sense now, like when you yeah. think about the, the history of vinyl that like, yeah, you're kind of taking people on this journey where it's like, high, usually high energy at the beginning, kind of a bit of a lull in the middle. And then, you know, the end, you kind of, you know, it starts up again and then it dies down yeah. again, right? It's yeah, like, like, like that's it,
1: why the B side has like some solid hits, too, because you, you want your like next energetic records to be at the very start of side B um because side B you're down to like the outermost side again so yeah
0: yeah it's it's such a it, it, again, it comes back down to, like, learning your foundations, right? And, like, mm-hmm. this is this is the foundational knowledge that you need to know in order to, like, properly plan your album sequence. And when when you know this stuff and you are, I mean, maybe it doesn't matter as much these days when you're going completely digital. But, you know, if you are planning on doing any sort of vinyl uh, releases, then you, you 100% need to be aware of this stuff so that you know, you're, you're getting the best best bang for your buck and your album sounds really good.
1: Exactly. So yeah, yeah. I, I highly recommend checking out um, the Women in Vinyl podcast because they really um do deep dives on every facet of the vinyl production process. Like even the packaging, even the weight of the vinyl record. Um, And then there are also different kinds of strategies to releasing your music. So you can release like the r- typical way where you work with vinyl cutters and then have a pressing plant. But then... If you don't want to deal with like the long turnaround times right now and you're only releasing like 50 copies or 100 copies, I also recommend checking out lathe cuts. So lathe cuts are different from from the um, uh, typical um, mass uh, production of vinyl, because with lathe cuts, um, the lathe cutter cuts every record one at a time. So it's great for like small batch orders. Um, there's actually one, and I think she's in Toronto or Vancouver. But one of the other board members of Women in Vinyl runs a lathe cut um, business, yeah. and um, her name's Robin Raymond. Um, she runs Red Spade Records in in Canada.
0: Yeah, that's definitely in Toronto. It's funny, actually. I learned on. I, I also, when I was working at that manufacturing plant, we bought one of those lathes, and I and I oh, could really? be wrong. I could be wrong, but I think Robin is using the exact same lathe that I learned on. So. Yeah, like I, I did learn. I learned some oh, of this wow, stuff too. That's, that's why, I like, some world. of these questions, it's bringing, it's bringing me back. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's the same machine that she had. But yeah, I mean, those things are. It's definitely. Th- that's why I'm so interested in what you do because you're doing it on a, a much bigger, more professional level yeah, than on mm-hmm. a lathe like that. We, we use a
1: the- Norman SX74 cutter head. So yeah, like um, lathe cuts uh, are, are in terms of quality, it's really not comparable to like the the standard process that mass production is done on. Um, but It really empowers a lot of the DIY community, like the indie, where Mm -hmm. they don't need to spend um, for a 500 quantity order just for them to make their vinyl dreams possible. They can Mm -hmm. do it with 10 discs with a lathe cut.
0: And and even lathe cutting too. There's a big learning curve to that as well, right? I mean, it's it's a lot of these same principles that you're talking about that you do on that bigger level. They still apply with the lathe. Just with the lathe, there are you're typically dealing with like. Not as great quality of parts, you know, and, and that could be a challenge ins- to some degree as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely like everyone should check out uh, lathes as well, just to get a sense of you know what the difference can be. Yeah, um, but there and and there are some out there, but it's I will say that like any a lot of people I think are attracted to lathes because they think like oh I can just do it myself and it, it'll be cheap because like they're they're not that expensive in the grand scheme of things. But uh, I'll tell you that you're you're gonna be learning on if you're start trying to self teach yourself this stuff like. It's gonna take you years to get it. To get yeah, it right.
1: yeah, and and at the end of the day, it's like even if you don't have access to a vinyl record, like just just keep producing music, keep recording, mixing, mastering, and and like you might just end up in a, an opportunity where you can apprentice with with a vinyl facility, like like what happened to me. Um, so yeah, just just keep doing what you do, and and just um keep yourself, keep your eyes. Um, vigilant to opportunities that are in front of you.
0: Of course. Yeah. Well, Jet, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast today. There was so much great information here. And, you know, I just think that this is uh, this is definitely a topic that we haven't talked about on the podcast before. So it's it's something fresh that I think a lot of people will be really interested in learning. So um, I I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this.
1: No, thank you. It's a pleasure. And um, you have so many awesome questions lined up today. I, I had a great time.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So that was my interview with Jack Galindo, and that was really interesting. I really love the amount of detail that she went into about the vinyl cutting process and a lot of the little nuances that go into it. and ultimately why it's such a special craft that not many people know about. And it actually brought me back because many years ago, as I mentioned in the podcast, I worked for a manufacturing brokerage, and we did try to dip our toes into cutting vinyl ourselves, and we had bought a lathe. And the process of learning how to cut on a lathe is very difficult. It's it's unlike learning how to manipulate sound inside of your DAW. There's a lot of components that go into it, whether it's the machine itself, or the the material that the vinyl is made of or the diamond that you're using to cut things on. There's a lot of little nuances that you have to pay attention to every single detail and be very, very attentive to everything so that you make sure that you're cutting things properly. So it was really interesting to hear Jet talk about her process using some bigger machines like the Neumann that she uses versus using a lathe. And it also reaffirmed a lot of the feelings that I had when I was working at that manufacturing brokerage about whether people should be just going directly to the plant versus going through a third party. And I 100% agree with everything that Jet said in this interview. So uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a lot of fun to go into that. And uh, yeah, it definitely brought me back to a time many years ago. So I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I hope that you learned a ton out of it. I had a lot of fun with it, certainly. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live every Wednesday morning. We've got tons of great interviews lined up, and uh, there's just so much more information that you can learn as a result of some of the upcoming interviews that we've got scheduled here. I've got a whole bunch that are just in the editing process as we speak, and yeah, there's so much gold coming out. So uh, be ready for that, guys. Make sure to subscribe, and make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out music musicians with creating pro sounding mixes from their home studios and on the website we've got tons of great resources designed to make the process of recording editing and mixing your music easy one of which I definitely want to recommend you check out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and it is a book where I break down the step by step process of mixing your tracks from home. And inside, i walk you through when to use things like EQ, compression, effects, automation and so much more. If you are new to mixing or if you've been working on your mixes for a while, but you're not quite happy with them, or if you're someone who's been working at this for a while but your process is taking you a long time and you're looking to speed it up and you want to learn a workflow that lets you make better mixes in less time, definitely check out this book. Once again, it's called The Mixing Mindset and it is available at MasterYourMix.com. So that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I really look forward to chatting with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.